um, three uh, black males come in and they uh, – three males come in and the first one is dressed almost like an overcoat, shirt, tie, little bit older, looks – you know, didn't think anything of it. And then the other two kids were behind him and the one kid in the behind, in behind says, hey, is uh, Detective Will in? And my mind goes back to that phone call of Detective Mike Will's foreman coming in to pick up a witness voucher. And the next thing I know, the kid in front with the the um, long overcoat, um, kid to me now because I'm like almost 60 years old. But I mean, back then I was only, what, 20, 29 or something. Maybe I was 30. But um, he pulls out a uh, uh, Cobra M11 machine pistol long magazine um and depresses a trigger and starts firing welcome to game of crimes let me ask a question here real quick too because there's an interesting jurisdictional question here because in the federal statutes, I mean, back at that time, there was no federal statute for just like a murder. The FBI had no authority to make arrests and investigate murders, but D.C. being a special district. So when it came to charging, you'd get somebody on this. What Even though you guys would help make the case, did that all get charged through then uh, the D.C. Metropolitan Police through their court system or how much of that could you take federal? Yeah, that was wild. I mean, we we papered cases in the DC system. We you you learned you did the like PD one twenty threes. I think they were called their their form, like their report of investigation. You know, everything was recorded, or you did a you you typed it. You know, like their their statements were like, you know, what did you see next? You have to, you know put it in, and then what their exact answer was. I mean, it, you you did everything on pretty much DC. It was on DC paperwork, and everything went through DC Superior Court. Um, but you know, you testified as a witness, or you, you know, you, you, you know, you would, uh, your detective partner would um, help you paper that case, or you would, you know, just jointly put that thing together, the case file, and present it to the U.S. attorney. Or to, well, they were U.S. attorneys in Superior Court, but they were, you know, what I mean, but they were they were Superior Court and attorneys doing it in the states. Can you explain what you mean when you say paper a case? Yeah, I mean paper in a case was like the the instead of like in the federal system, you know, you do a complaint and then, you know, an indictment and and uh, you know, you do discovery. I mean, DC is almost it, is a police department and they have a whole set of separate in different forms that have grown up through their court system and, and through their department. And, and basically that's, you know, what you, you know, there's certain things and I don't recall everything now, but I mean, there's certain, you know, things that you had to do before you presented that to a court and, and present to the, to the attorneys, to the prosecutor's office to, to, um, you know, file that charge. So you're, you're basically documenting your investigation and showing what evidence you have to corroborate what you're claiming. Yeah, but you're filling out D.C. Metro police right. paperwork as opposed to the FBI 302, you know, and everything yeah. else, right? Yeah, See, I yeah. even knew the name. It's a 302. Uh, you can't throw a 302 out there and not explain it, Morgan. 
Well, I, 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 how do you define how do you define a three hundred two three oh two no three hundred two? It's well, he knows better than I do, but it's basically it's their narrative report, you know, of of investigation. It's a witness so. summary. Yeah, it's a it's a like DEA does a DEA six, right? Is it right. six? It's a report of investigation, whereas the FBI does a separate FD three hundred two for every like if I interview. Missouri, I um, Missouri full shizzle. That's right. <laughs> if, I, if I do Missouri, I, I I will uh, you know do it on a um, on a three hundred two, and uh, you know, but I wouldn't interview. And then if I interview you, that goes on a separate three hundred two, and it's a it's just a summary. It's not exact transcript, but there's there's roles to it. Like if someone makes a quote, yes, I killed you know Joe Smith. You know, you would put that. You'd in like quote. to get that in a quote, yeah. Yeah. And I always actually, as I went through my career, you know, I, I, I recorded, uh, I recorded, um, uh, the, the subject interviews. Um, I, I was all for recording and then the bureau allowed it for a while and then they pulled it back and then they stopped it. And then I, I would just take a state officer with me and hit the record button. And, you know, as the plea facilitator, because if you had a full confession on tape, man, there's, you know, and you, I don't know why the FBI was so intent on not well, it's because it's the – I don't know, but I have uh, my theories having worked down at DOJ on a big information that, project. But That was it. It was a DOJ policy. It was DOJ. But, you know, but there is an advantage, though, to recording things from an investigator standpoint because you keep the flow going. You keep the questions going because if you have to stop and write something down – it mm-hmm. breaks the flow. And so I love recording stuff because you could just – you might make a couple notes like say, okay, ask about something. You'd, something pop into your head. You'd write it, get it out of your head. But I love doing the recordings. But but to your point, you get their – you get you, you advise some other rights. You get their waiver on tape. I always used to do that. And then I'd get done. I'd always recap it. I'd say, hey, do you remember when I, you, I brought you in, right? I yep. advised you of your rights. Remember when you said you understood them? Remember when you waived your rights? You said, you're talking to me without an attorney now. Has anybody beat you, whipped you, you know, thrown a grenade at you? You kind of make it, you're, oh, no, 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 everything's fine. Uh, did we bring you water? Did we give you a break and everything? Once you get that done, I had one guy try to take that series of burglaries and stuff to court. And once we started playing the tape, I mean, the convictions, he tried every case separately, but it, it took the jury five minutes to convict this guy. It took him 15 minutes to fill out the paperwork. Is like, to your point, but I digress, a drinking game, that's number four. So back to you. No, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you under the influence of drugs or alcohol, if I or any member of law enforcement threatened you, and it, it, it protects the investigator, the, integrity of, of right. the investigation and of the admission, yeah. And like you said, you know, hey, look, we're <laughs> there's plenty of guilty people out there. We're we're not here to convict the innocent. You know, no to right. our politicians and stuff. But I mean, it, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's like you just want to, and it, it really keeps the system flowing because it is a a plea agreement facilitator. If you have a full confession voluntarily made. And rock solid, recorded on audio. It's like it helps it helps grease the wheels of justice and moves things along faster. Because to your point, you have the respected defense attorneys. They're going to go. They're going to talk to their client. And go, hey, look, dude. Um, I can tell you from experience, this is not going to go well if you want to argue this in front of a judge. You get past your preliminary, your evidentiary hearings. They admit everything. Once everything's admitted, it's like okay, now let's talk plea. But anyway, back to you though. So you're on this squad. Um, you're you're working these things. As you, as you start working up, so the, the question I wanted to ask you, though, during that time, you were having all these homicides. What was their clearance rate, if you remember? For every, you know, were they solving one out of 10, two out of 10? Do it you was, remember? It was low. I, I'd have to look that up nowadays. But, I mean, it, it was it was really low. 
It was really low. And, Which and meant the we cold case was, squad, you guys had a lot of cases to work on. Plenty, plenty of cases. And, um, you know, and, and it was part of like the FBI's role in that. We would come in, we'd do triage, and then go out with the detective. So, like, um, you know, I, I, usually your detectives in court all day on different cases, and then you met up, I met up with them, in, you know, late afternoon, early afternoon, and then you'd basically work the streets at night. You know, you'd go out and find witnesses. And that was, and if I go to that, fateful day, you know, of, of the shooting. I mean, that's exactly what was happening. I mean, my detective partner, Lauren Ledman, the late Lauren Ledman, uh, he was, um, uh, over in court with Mike Will and, um, they, and I got into the, so we had the FBI office at the old buzzards point. And then that's where the FBI squad supervisor was at Dixon and, um, uh, still really good friend, great guy. And, and all, everybody was over there and it was the old bullpen, you know, effect where you had a bunch of desks. It was like his new FBI offices. They're like nice, shiny with pictures on the wall and, you know, cubicles and they look like corporate office spaces. But back then it was like a bunch of like prison made furniture by the, you know, from of like these old smashed together and there was no privacy. And, and, but there was a, point of that you know when you talk about intelligence and all this stuff you know i mean everybody kind of knew if you're talking oh hey wait you were talking about you know whatever i got a source or whatever you know what i mean and that's kind of like this open concept that people don't understand and it was like something out of the movies you know where it was just this awful you know decrepit building with a bunch of desks smashed in there and that's how we operated but i would go over i would get into work later you know um that you know bureaus like 815 to 5, but it's like I would take care of our new daughter, you know, our daughter at that point, she's now married and living overseas, but with a great son in law. But, um, you know, then she was like eight months old, right? And, you know, I'd, I'd, my wife would go off to work. We kind of almost had split shifts, right? I would take care of Anna, get her, you know, ready. And then I'd, we had a lady come in and watch her. And then I would leave like, you know, sometime I'd get in like late morning, early afternoon. And then I work late into the night with, with, uh, the detectives and, and, um, you know, that day in particular was like any other day. I, 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 you know, got up, took care of her, Holly came, you know, took over and then my wife would come home later. Hey, uh, Marcus, Horse, we talk about this day now, now let's get specific date. So, uh, the day it gets the day in here. When did this happen? Yeah, November 22nd, 1994. All right. Starts like any other day. And how long had you been on the bureau? Uh, I, I graduated from the academy August. Uh, was it August fourteenth of uh, of um, August fourteenth ninety one? Yeah, so I'm only in a couple of years. You know, what I mean, I did a year on C six, and then um, you know, a year on this on this one. Um, and you know, I did those couple months on the applicant squad, give or take like a half year or so on the applicant squad. So I mean, I'm I'm still relatively young. new. Yeah, I'm, I'm new. I'm, I'm a rookie, you know, in, in the scheme of things. Right. Um, and, uh, so, so I get into the field office and, you know, over to the buzzards point and, you know, you did back then we didn't have, we had air tells and stuff. We didn't have uh teletypes and we didn't have the, uh, you didn't have email. You didn't have, I think the internet was pretty much in its infancy, you know, um, you had computers, obviously, but you still had the IBM Selectric typewriter for certain documents. Remember the old, what was that? They were like um, carbon, you know, you'd have to, you'd type on a sheet and then you'd pull it and you'd have the sheet underneath that was the copy. Yeah. 
They had those forms too that were it was carbonless copy, but you could type on it and it would, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And to get all that stuff all over your fingers, and yeah. Even then, we were so much more efficient. We had we had a dictation, uh, a steno pole that you would just dictate into a magnetic tape, and then you would send your stuff to the steno pole, and it come back and you would correct it. We didn't type our own stuff. I mean, I remember like, and that's I think where the bureau lost a lot too. You know, it's like if you were sitting at your desk and you were typing something, you weren't solving taking, crime. That's exactly right. Your supervisor was on your tail. And, you know, what are you doing? We have people to do this. You're not, you're not hired and not paid by the U.S. government to sit around and type. Get out on the street and interview somebody. Go find an informant. Go knock go on do doors. Something. That's exactly right. And that's how the Bureau used to be. You know, by the time I retired, it wasn't that way anymore. and It hadn't been for a while. But, I mean, that's, that's the way it was. And, I mean, I, I think if you probably put the numbers up and, and the, the level of cases that we were able to solve back then, I mean, it was pretty monumental. But I digress. Um, so so I, I got over the field office that morning, November 22nd, or like mid-late morning, maybe close to noon. And Martha was there. Mike was there. Uh, a lot of the squad mates were over there, and you know, you did administrative FBI stuff that you had to do. And then I transitioned. I would go over to DC Metropolitan Police Headquarters, which was in the uh, area where, like, the U.S. Attorney's Office was there. The that was right next to the federal courthouse, across the street from DC Superior Court, Indiana Avenue. I mean, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't far, like a stone's throw from the Capitol Building. I mean, it's like off the mall a little bit on the north side of the mall, but it was an area at that time. Um, now you have the, um, uh, you know, where the, where the, um, I don't know if they still call it the Verizon center, but it, it's the, uh, where, where the, where the capitals playing stuff. I mean, that whole area has been completely back then it was a no man's land, probably from the still burned out buildings from the 68 riots from just north of there all the way up to Chinatown. And all Chinatown was was just the one street. I think it was like G or H Street. And then north of there was another no man's land. It was pretty much like open air drug markets and just you didn't want to walk around there, you know, um, and that's how it was. That was kind of the edge of the downtown D.C. area. Now, I mean, that area is like spectacular with outdoor cafes and restaurants. And yeah, I think you know, it's called the, it's the Capital One Arena now, formerly the Verizon Center. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, that was that's a beautiful area down there now. Now, back then it was it was a no man's land. It was a, it was just you, you know if you park too far off that street, your car would likely get broken into. Um, it was just, uh, it was, it was rough. I mean, no one would be caught dead up there after at night, you know, in the streets surrounding it. But, but that's where, where DC police headquarters were. And, and, and even back then there was no metal detectors, but even as bad as that city was, I always say, and I've said this a million times, but for that, this incident to happen inside DC police headquarters, like hallowed ground, you know, filled with, you know, I don't know how many police officers at that point, but it, it would be like lightning striking on a sunny day. You know, it just even as bad as DC was, you you wouldn't think this would happen. So, so I go over and the cold case office to kind of set what this area looks like. It's a like probably a 1920s, maybe early turn of the century granite faced building, big granite building. Um, I think it's about six stories high maybe. And, um, on the top floor 
would be the DC police chief and the command staff and, you know, every, you know, that whole command staff. And then there was a multi-use building though. So you had, you had, um, state probation or DC probation was in there. You had driver's license bureau was on the first floor. You had a lot of unrelated to policing type offices on the first, maybe second floor in that building at the time, no metal detectors. And if you were think like you're looking down, right. Um, if you're at Google maps and you're looking down satellite imagery, right. This would, this building is a big square and the middle of it is hollow. So if you're looking straight down, there's a big courtyard in the middle, and all the offices are built on the exterior of this square. Like, does that make sense? Sounds like an embassy suites. Yeah. And it goes up, you know, six stories. So if you're on the sixth floor, you can look down all the way down to the courtyard on the, the first floor. Well, it's kind of the way the DOJ building is, right? You've got the square in the middle, you know, and everything's built around. You can look inside the interior courtyard. Yeah. And the the interior courtyard is a lot smaller there, and you you couldn't get onto that courtyard. But but basically, so you you walk through the front entrance, you walk to the other side of the hallway, and there's there's an elevator that takes you up to the – took me up to the third floor. And on the third floor, you get off that elevator, and the first – office you see is um the desk sergeant for main homicide and then you see main homicide and then dc had seven police districts at that time and each police district had their own homicide there's main homicide and then seven so 1d 2d 3d all the way up to 7d came around that corridor um so if you're if you get off the elevator and you walk right desk sergeant main homicide one through seven police districts, sex offense, sex, sex crimes, uh, special victims unit. That was on that, that floor also. What was the difference between Maine Homicide and the other districts? Were they like RHD, you know, robbery homicide? Did they take over certain cases or? They, they took over certain cases. And, and I think back in the day prior to there being, you know, 400 some, hom- you know, 472, 482 homicides, you know, the, it was probably, it was more designed like that where they, where they, you know, so they did more the, the, the bigger you know the the, high the related profile cases, cases, high significant, profiles, significant okay. cases, and stuff like that. And, and in that main homicide was the captain of homicide, Hennessy, um, uh, who's I think I don't know if he retired, but I think he's still a Prince George's County judge after he left the department. Um, and then Captain Hennessy, and then you know you go around, and on the almost like a mirror image on the other side of the building around the corridor. So say I'm going to say just for I don't know if it's north or south, but we'll say main homicides on the north side. We're on the south side corridor of that building going around is is the cold case squad. And we're kind of down. There's not a lot of empty offices between us and the last one, which was 7D. And that's where our office was located. Our office, when you walk in the door, it had a cipher lock on it. The old push button cipher lock wasn't electronic. But and that kind of comes relevant in the story, but there's a cipher lock on it and then you walk into a main big room and that's again the bullpen just like you know the prison furniture the old you know used court furniture and things like that all smashed together and everybody had a desk in there so fbi task force working on the task force had it and then the the cold case dc homicide detectives had a desk in there um to the far right end of that main big room was 
my detective partner, Lauren Ledman, that was his desk. And then across directly across from him was Mike Will's desk, who was the detective. And they were both in court that day. I was the first one to get there. So I come in the office, I'm by myself. And, and the other part of this, so there's a large, wait, sorry, the dog's drinking. Hold on. Sorry. We're a pet friendly oh, show. Me. If you've seen yeah. my cats come across here, meow. <laughs> we were recording something. Uh, here I go. I, I I digress for a minute. We were recording a Patreon episode yesterday, and Murph could hear my cat through my closed door all the way out in the kitchen, meowing, How wanting attention. That? Yeah. So we're a pet friendly show. So no, that's cool. But um, yeah, the other one's sunning himself out there, so he'll he'll start barking when he wants in. But hey, I, I hate to keep interrupting. So back to the layout of this building. So you have the large office. And then to the left of that large office is like that old, um, uh, like that rug wall, like modular furniture wall kind of stuff that you make cubicles out of. That's what separates the office to the right, the main office with the office, the smaller office to the left. And so you come in the main door, you come in the main, um, uh, you come into the main part of the office, there's some chairs sitting there, like a little seating area. And then if you were to go left through that modular rug wall type opening, there was a, like an, like almost a cubicle furniture made like a little kitchen area. You know, people kept their lunch, that 1D, 2D, all those districts, they kept, guys kept their lunches in there because there was a refrigerator there. And there was, um, you know, coffee maker in there and people put quarters in for soda and stuff like that. Continuing through that little modular made kitchen, you came into the little room and directly on, we'll say, the uh, west side wall is a sofa. Behind the sofa is that interview room where we used to do subject interviews and bring witnesses in and record. And so if, if you're sitting on the sofa, to your right is a desk and to your left is is a desk on the other side of the armchair, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the overview of how that cold case squad was set up. How many people? How many people would that area hold comfortably at one time? How many people would be working in that that uh, in that squad? little room? Yeah. In the little room? Oh, the little room on uh, was only Hank Daly had a seat. He called that his office. Hank Daly was a detective sergeant in charge of the cold case squad. He was like the FBI supervisor, um, but you know, for the DC detectives, you know, and then we had our supervisor Ed Dixon over at the field office, but he was his, um, you know, equal in the, in the, in the scheme of, you know, running the case, but that was just Hank and another desk and then, um, that sofa and then the interview room. So really there'd only be like two or three people back at any given time. Um, or it was really crowded. I mean, to, to give you the, the area, if, if Hank, well, I'll, I'll get into that, but um, not to get too far. So back to – I come in the office. I go in the main part on the right. I sit down at Lauren's desk, and I start going through – he's in court with Mike Will. I, I start going through case files and figuring out – and this is the old school before internet, before Google Maps. You know what I mean? You had to have the old books and figure out like you know addresses and things of that nature. And um, – we, uh, uh, you know, I was going through the case file and trying to line up like what witnesses on what we were working and what witnesses and identifying like, you know, where their addresses are and things like that um, from the old hard books and stuff like that. And I was just kind of lining up the evening while he's in court. And then 
Martha comes in. Um, she goes and sits in the main room at her desk, which is kind of opposite, um, more closer to the the door, the front door, the main door. And then, but on this side of the that makeshift wall, and on this side of the the little room. So, and in the main room, how many people would that hold as well? Too, how many people could be working in there? There's probably could be up to I'm gonna say probably about twenty twenty five people could be in there. This is just a bunch of desks just smashed together, no walls, nothing in between, right? The, the, the old filing cabinets and, and things of that nature. So um, Martha comes in and then Hank Daly, the detective sergeant that the, you know, uh, comes in and he, he walks back to um, my desk and starts talking to me. And, you know, um, and Hank was, <laughs> he was like a, again, another legend, but like, here's a guy is, I think at that point he was like 20, 27 years and he could have retired. Um, you know, and Hank was just full of stories and he was like a walking encyclopedia, not on just investigative knowledge, but everybody in the city. You know, he worked his way up from street cop in the late 60s all the way, early 70s, um, all the way up through to, you know, running this cold case squad as detective sergeant and just a, a wealth of knowledge. Like you could give Hank a name. And then, oh yeah, he was, he came, his name came up in whatever shooting or, you know, his, his mama is this person or, you know, his cousin is this person or he's related to this group. And, and like gangs in DC are not like Crips and Bloods, right? They were, they were, they called them crews, right? And they basically were crews based on street corner blocks. You know, there was the first and Kennedy street crew that they ran the drug trade on that little area. Um, of that little corner of, of DC, and and that's kind of how DC was was split up with these these little drug crews that were, you know, menacing the the people that that lived there, and you know. And Murph, I think who were we talking? Which episode was it? I don't know. Maybe if it was Dominic when he was doing those cases there, because we talked about that. I mean, we thought there'd be a lot of Crips and Bloods, but DC was very territorial. So we had Dominic Polifrom from ATF, and it's like there weren't these outside gangs that were in there. They, they were very territorial, like you said. They were neighborhood gangs, which kind of made it unique because they were all homegrown. There was no national gang and no national leadership you could point to, right? Yeah, and it, they were very, very. Uh, I'm sorry, was Murphy going to answer? I'm sorry about that. No, nope, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they were very it, it, territorial. Is is the the right term? These are kids that all grew up together. They stayed in that neighborhood. They controlled the drug trade in that neighborhood. They fought. You know, gotten shootings if somebody was encro from if the next neighborhood over, you know, was encroaching on their territory, they would get involved in shootings with them. They would, um, and again, that that's where a lot of the violence w would come from. You know, the the first and Kennedy Street crew, you know, were in running gun battles, and in fact, um, a little bit about them. I, 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 there was one specific case. It was, you know, pretty awful, just like a lot of the depravity that was going on in D.C. at the time. But this, you know, woman Northeast D.C. single mom um, puts her kids in the car seat, going to um, take them into. Um, uh, take them to uh, daycare on her way into work in, in downtown DC. And she's driving around North Capitol street and this, you know, first and Kennedy gang members getting a running gun battle with a neighboring crew, uh, you know, from a different neighborhood that had been encroaching. And they, um, uh, you know, had this running gun battle and the woman sitting at the red light and 
boom, the, the bullet, you know, pierces the uh, passenger side window and, you know, goes into her head with her, you know, kids in the back seat. And that's the kind of stuff that was, you know, going that's on. Heartbreaking, um, heartbreaking. What, yeah. So, I mean, it was just extremely violent groups of like, there's almost like Lord of the Flies writ large with, with guns and crack, you know? I mean, it's just, that's, that's what DC was. So, um, Going back to that that fateful day, uh, Hank comes over, starts talking to me at Lauren's desk, and he's like, "Hey, come on back to my office, you know." And and he considered his office that little room on the other side of the makeshift cubicle walls. Um, you couldn't see over the top, you know. I mean, you you it was separated, but you could probably hear what's going on over there. And um, it's all separated. So we go back, and Hank sits at his desk. I sit on the sofa outside the interview room. And then Mike Miller comes into the office at some point, and he um, sits at that desk opposite of Hank. So my back's to the wall. I'm sitting at the sofa. Hank is at his desk to his right. Mike is to his is to my left. If the three of us stood up, we could all touch hands in the middle. That's how close this area is, just to give you some kind of perspective. Very little opening between Mike's desk and Hank's desk. They're both facing each other. Um, you know, probably a few feet, you know, away from each other, but enough to like walk through and get to that sofa interview room door opening is behind me. So we're talking tank tanks, telling war stories. We're talking about whatever case was going on. And I remember at the time there was a, there was a cold case just got, just took over a, um, uh, there was a, a series of, um, again, like a, a red ball case, you know what I mean? Even though it wasn't a cold case, but it was related to a group of cold, homicides uh this is the same group believe you said involved. red ball what does that mean like a like a high priority you know okay. high priority case right so there was a series of armored car robberies in where they the, you know the the robbers just shot the guards you know no reason just to you know this is how life was cheap in dc and there was one that happened actually not far from my wife's office at that point up on like the area of like 18 and them where like all the law firms and accountants and lobbyists and all those places were you know nowhere was safe really and, and that that was um we had got pulled that um just before november 22nd and it was a uh um and and actually me and another detective went out and did an interview that you know of a cooperating witness and and you know identified you know who was involved in this and there's a bunch of old homicides and that's why the cold case got it and the, and so the whole squad was working and hank was you know talking about you know different things and hank was an education right I, I looked at hank like a teacher you know even mike even though he was second office agent looked at hank as a teacher you know the guy was just filled with knowledge and you could pick his brain and you know it's, it's downtime in the office it's it's uh you know i'm waiting for um lauren to get out of court let, let me digress because this is important before hank comes in before martha comes in i get a phone call over the main line i pick up the phone and the person's voice on the end of the phone, young man, he says, hey, is Detective Will in? Detective Will is the detective who's over in court with Lauren. I said, no, he's not here. He's like, hey, can you check? It's a couple of days before Thanksgiving, right? November 22nd. He says, can you check the um, his desk? He's supposed to have a witness voucher for me, like an informant payment of some type, you know, like on DC paper. Gives me his name. I don't know what the name is, but whatever he tells me on the phone, 
I get back online. Yeah, it's here. He says, okay, I'll be buying a little bit to pick it up. Okay. So that's in my mind, right? I'm there by myself. I'm putting the case, what we're going to do that night together. I get a phone call. Kid says he's going to come over to pick up this witness voucher. Okay. Think nothing of it. Martha comes in. Hank comes in. Hank and I go back to Hank's office, what he calls his office, that little area, that other room. Mike comes in. We're all sitting around talking. That's where I'm at the story. Different, like I said, different officers, detectives on that floor would, there was a cipher lock, but it was like an old door from the 1920s that you really had to pull shut, you know, it was like warped at that point. Um, and, and, you know, they'd leave, people would leave it jammed open intentionally uh, because they'd come in and out and not use that cipher lock. And um, they would go back and they'd get coffee in that little makeshift kitchen between the main room and the little room that I'm in with Hank and Mike. And, you know, people were popping their head. I remember at one point, like uh, Jay Abbott and Jerry Bamel, who were on the squad, they pop in, they pop their head around the corner, and they, they're talking to Mike, Hank, and I. Martha's in the other room. Um, and then they leave, come and go. The next thing that happens is um, three uh, black males come in, and they uh, – three males come in, and the first one is dressed almost like an overcoat, shirt, tie, a little bit older, looks – you know, didn't think anything of it. And then the other two kids were behind him, and the one kid in the behind, in behind says – Hey, is uh, Detective Will in? And my mind goes back to that phone call of Detective Mike Will's foreman coming in to pick up a witness voucher. And the next thing I know, the kid in front with the the um, long overcoat, um, kid to me now because I'm like almost 60 years old. But I mean, back then I was only, what, 20, 29 or something. Maybe I was 30. But um, he pulls out a uh, – uh, Cobra M11 machine pistol, long magazine, um, and depresses a trigger and starts firing. Is this automatic or semi-automatic? It's it's automatic. It's it's illegally possessed because I'll, I'll tell the rest of the story. But he is a felon, and it was illegally owned and manufactured to fire full auto. So. He does a uh, – it would be like a 360, right? Hits Hank first, spins, hits one of the informants as the kid's hightailing out of the room. The other informant would have ran in front of me. I didn't see that, you know, but he ran past me and went into that interview room behind me and ducked under the table while the shooting was going on. Hits Mike as Mike's sitting, does a real quick spin. We're talking like probably milliseconds at this point, right? Like a 360 turn, depress the trigger, bullets flying. I see Hank go down. Hank's hit multiple times. I see Mike go down behind the desk. Um, training kicks in. I always carried my firearm on my side, as, as you're trained to do. And thank God I didn't have like an ankle holster on or a fanny pack like we used to carry back then. But like I, you know, I'm like, because I, I think automatically, you know, you're trained, you, your hand, I'm right-handed. So my hand goes to my holster on the right and thank God it was there and I didn't have it on some ankle holster where I'm trying to figure out, you know what I mean? Because, you know, a matter of seconds would have, would have made all the difference, right? But as I'm, I, I immediately, a couple things happen. You know, none's got to me early. Uh, I'm a, you know, 
practicing Christian. I was raised Catholic, but I I, uh, I started saying Hail Marys and Glory Bees, and um, and I instinctively go to my firearm and my right holster and uh, draw my my firearm, and um, I you know start to get up and engage the shooter as he's he does a three sixty, Hank informant mike now he's turned to me and he's firing at me and um as i'm getting up from the sofa i'm firing at him and i'm starting to move backward to the other armrest so he's at the uh we'll say if right and left right if i was sitting say in the middle i was probably sitting closer to hank um but he's he starts he goes to the top armrest i'm at the bottom armrest of that sofa there's a there's a wall to my right hank i'm sorry there's a wall to my left hank is to my right mike is slumped below the the um below the desk um that would have been you know behind the shooter or like off to the right of the shooter um so i i just you know i there's no take and aim. I mean, it's just like point and try to pull that trigger as fast as you can down at the threat at the target. And uh, I can't get the bullets out fast enough and I can feel bullets hitting me. So one hits my upper chest, one goes through my bicep, my bicep. Um, and then the one that did the most damage, I guess, um, hits one hits like a graze wound my neck my i had a graze wound on my my left arm it's probably more than a graze room i went through the bone but it it uh you know kind of carved out a piece of the bone um and then i'm just firing us we had a uh, sig nine millimeter uh, was a 226 back then is what we were issued before glocks which i actually fired the glock a lot better but um we you know, I'm just firing is getting trying to get as many bullets out as I can, and I, I just can't pull that trigger fast enough. And if I break it down into, um, it, it was like everything was on like super fast forward, right? But I could break down in my mind almost like frames of, of a film clip, right? Exactly what was happening each moment, right? And then as I'm backing up, shooting at him, he's shooting at me. I'm getting hit. I know I'm getting hit. The bullets didn't hurt. They, it was like a piercing, burning feeling, you know, but it, they, they didn't hurt at that point, although I know, I'm getting, I'm, I know I'm getting shot, you know. And then the one that hits me in the chest, and that's the one that uh, did the most damage. And I was like, it's like almost like a, a balloon inside of you pops, right? And that what actually went through the pericardial sac into my, um, I think it's the left, I'd have to look it up medically, but I think it's the left atrium. It's your low pressure chamber. And that's probably the only reason why I lived that and a lot of prayers and medical science advances. But, um, it, you know, went through my heart, then through my lung, then traveled on through my liver, which grows back, um, and then took up part of my kidney. And, um, that bullet still actually, they didn't, they didn't pull it out. It's still like in there. Um, but they, so when that happened, I knew that was serious. Right. And, you know, I, I knew, like, I thought to myself, I got to get down, you know, I got to get lower, get down. And, um, um, and I, again, I'm, I'm praying, <laughs> um, firing bullets at this guy and I am, uh, 
and and I'm getting hit. And I think to myself, I got to get down. The moment I, I thought like, hey, I got to get down, that's when the bullets hit my right leg. And that was up to this point, you know, I felt like, you know, like I said, like the balloon popped and I knew it was serious, but it still didn't hurt. You know what I mean? But when I, when I hit my leg, that was excruciating pain and it shattered, you know, my femur and like it looked, if you look at the x-rays afterwards, I mean, it literally looked like you could take a bite out of, um, out of an, an apple. And that's what my femur looked like. And it was shattered in multiple places. And, you know, and, uh, I, I hit the ground. I just, I fell. My, my legs came out from underneath me. And now I'm laying out prone and my head is, is underneath the, um, underneath the armrest and I can't see. And I'm laying on the ground and I just basically reach my, my firearm, uh, up over the, the, um, over the, uh, uh armrest. And I just kept cranking runs until I, I, I'm, I lost consciousness. Right. And, um, you know, I was firing like where the, where the threat last, last was. And, um, I, I'm in and out of consciousness. I hear gunfire, not in my immediate area as I'm coming to at one point. And, you know, you have the smell of, you know, the range almost like that acrid smell of, you know, gunpowder and, um, your ears are ringing. Never stop praying. Um, and I can hear that gunfire, not my immediate area. And that would have been, I can see what was going on because it was in a different room, but he's engaged in the gunfight with Martha in, in the adjacent room. Um, the next thing I, I'm in and out, you know, I think to myself, hey, you know, okay, he's coming back to finish us off. Um, I look and I, I can see I didn't fire the lock back. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar with firearms, it's a semi-automatic um, uh pistol which you put a magazine in the receiver or in the handle so to speak and it um between the propulsion of the the gunpowder and the, the the explosion with the the pin hitting the the bullet and it causes an explosion and also the mechanical spring pushes another uh, bullet from that magazine what people call clips but it's really a magazine and the handle pushes it up into the firing chamber and to fire back and then when you fire it opens a chamber up and then it kicks out a bullet and then it um and then it closes and i knew looking at my my sig that i had not fired and, and when you were done with all your bullets when you fire the entire magazine it, it locks back and it's open so you put in you know to put in another magazine with bullets and i knew that um looking at, at my at my sig that it, i hadn't fired the lockbacks so i had bullets left i didn't know how many i fired and i think the final beer reports that I, I got 12 rounds off at them but how, um, how big were the how big were the magazines were i think those were those the 15 or 15. 17 15 yeah we had the 15 and then you put one in the chamber you know you always were one in the chamber so it carried 16 so uh next thing um uh, again i'm in and out of consciousness and i i hear um a woman detective's voice on on the other end. Now this little room has a, a door to my right that's behind Hank, um, and it's almost has a filing cabinet um, beside it, real close to it. And that door is never used. You want to go in or out of that 
of that room of, of the homicide cold case squad. You got to go through the main door in the other room. There's a little door that went out to the hallway from the other room, but that had a big slide bolt over it. It was always locked. No one used it. And that backed up to um, Hank's desk. Hank's laying there. You won't describe it, but you know, he's, he's hit really bad. Um, I hear this and it's the, this old 1920s building. So there's like a metal grate, you know, prior when they had air conditioning or whatever, probably to get airflow through the building, you know, there's this metal, thick metal grate that you couldn't bust through on the, on the bottom of it. And, um, I hear this woman's voice on the other side, you know, click, click, click. And, and she's like, we, we can't get the door open. And my mind goes back to um, several weeks before I was out with my detective partner, Lauren Ledman. I'm going to digress here for a second. But my mind goes back to um, when I was out with Lauren. It's a Friday night. We're done. We've been out doing interviews, you know, uh, hitting the streets. And then we come back and Lauren goes home. He drops me off and I, I at my car and I, Hey, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to get my jacket up there. And I left, you know, some things up in the, up in the cold case office. So I go up there, place is pretty empty at that point. You know, it's a Friday night people are all out doing whatever. And I, um, I get up to the cold case squad and I get to that cipher lock, the doors closed, nobody's in there. The office is empty and I hit the numbers on the cipher lock and it doesn't work. Okay. I guess they changed locks. I go down to that desk sergeant, main homicide on the other side of the building. I ask him. They, they change the locks. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Go to main homicide. Don't know. Go to 1D2D all the way around the building, you know, hit all seven police district homicide offices. Hey, anybody know what they changed the number to? No. This is back in the early days of cell phones. We had to pay for our own cell phones back then in the Bureau, right, 1994. And, um, I, I, and we had pagers. Remember the pagers, you know. But I, I start calling people on the squad um, I don't think we had automatic dial on those old cell phones. You had to like look up on a little sheet of paper you had written in your wallet, you know? And uh, I started calling people on the squad and I go through like just about the whole squad. And I think I get to like Jerry Bam or Sukos or somebody and they're like, oh yeah, they changed that. You know, here's, here's a new number I got in. But bottom line is it took me 45 minutes on that Friday night to get into that office, right? So I'm laying there. I know I'm hit seriously. I know I'm 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 having trouble breathing. I'm I, I'm tired. I'm going to fall asleep. I know I got to stay awake because if I close my eyes and fall asleep, as easy as that's going to be, I'm dead, right? And I think to myself, yeah, I got a wife. I got an eight month old daughter home. I'm not dying here. And I hear this woman's voice say, "We can't get the door open." They probably don't know what the damn cipher lock is, and it took. 45 minutes for me to get in. I can only imagine what's going to take them to get in. So all my power at this point, I, um, I, I crawl, you know, kind of, yeah, almost like a snake or get, you know, Hank is there. I have to crawl up to that door and I, in, I mean, my leg is in pain. I mean, it's just, it's the most excruciating thing I, you know, I've ever felt. And, and I know it's like I'm having trouble breathing. I know I'm like, it's almost like I'm drowning inside is what, what it felt like. And I get up to that door and I, I, I try the first time I try to get up and I use my weight and I fall back and I fall down and um, I can hear, you know, click, click. And then they're, they're asking me my name and, you know, I'm, I'm calling out, you know, officers done. I throw out 10 code, uh, you know, officers down, officers need assistance, you know, uh, um, you know, I, I 
Mike, Hank, I, I didn't know what happened with Martha. She was in the other room, but, but at that time I was calling out, you know, we've all been hit. I give the description, you know, three blackmail and subs, you know, cause I didn't know the, the informants, whether they were involved or not, but I just described what I saw. And second time I, I, I take all my power and I, I put my weight on that slide bolt on the door and I slide it with all my weight open. I'm still like kind of hanging on the ground, you know, but I, I reach up and I slide with all my weight and I slide that slide bolt open. And then I turn the knob of the door and then boom, it blows open. And then uh, three detectives rush into the room and it's uh, Brian Callen, Chris Kaufman and Neil Trugman, three DC homicide detectives in a bulletproof vest. Just happened to be walking through the hallway. They respond they, all this mayhem's going on. They don't know what's going on. Um, they, uh, they, they don't know what's on the other side of the room. But you know, they're again. You talk about. Um, uh, I owe a debt of gratitude. I, I, I owe a debt of gratitude um, because again, you know, didn't weren't waiting for a SWAT team to come in. You know, they they weren't waiting. You know, they they knew we were on the other side, and they bust in that door and rush in i get pulled out hank gets pulled out um they didn't they didn't see mike unfortunately he was you know behind the desk i'm being next hand i'm being pulled like by my you know my shirt around my shoulders i'm being dragged down the hallway like super fast and they're dragging me down the hallway and um they get me to a room and i said you know call priest i'm a catholic um i said i'm not gonna die so i got you know daughter and eight month old you know, um, uh, wife and eight month old daughter, uh, at home. And, um, and then they, you know, they get me on the floor and they know they're, they're working on me. They rip my shirt off. Um, they, they, uh, they put like a cellophane on me, on my chest and I'm really having trouble breathing. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like, it's almost like those old Western movies, right. You know, that we used to watch as kids where, you know, the guy gets shot and, person like don't don't fall asleep you know they're slapping a guy or whatever and tell them to stay awake you know and that's how i felt it's like i knew i knew three things i knew if i kept praying i knew if they got me to a hospital and i knew if i didn't fall asleep i was gonna live those three things had to happen and i could tell you so i i um so they're working on me it seemed like a lot of time was um it seemed like it was taking way too much time you know and i i remember you know Lieutenant Musgrove, who was, um, you know, more in a command staff over those homicide units, he was there and he uh, actually, he was in charge of the, uh, I knew he was a good guy. I knew him. He was uh, on that major crime task force. He was you know, leading that back when I was um, on that before getting the, to the cold case squad. And uh, he's on a radio and he's like, Hey, it's going to be hard, right, John. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, different people are working on me and, and uh, now look, my dad was a long dead at this point, right? Had been dead several years. My dad was a um, you know medic or corpsman in the Navy in World War II, Pacific Island hopping campaign on all those beach landings with you know the Marines and stuff on an LST. And um, you know he he's dead, but I, I swear to God, you know I I heard his voice, you know, like I, I heard my father's voice at that moment, and he's like. You got to get them out of here now, like shout, you know what I mean? And it's almost like they were taking too much time. It seemed like they were taking too much time. Time's ticking away. I feel like I'm drowning. And 
you know, I, I hear my dad's voice and it's like, you gotta get him out of here now screaming, you know? And right then they, they, they put me on like a sheet. They drag me over to a sheet and they, they all get, you know, like probably six guys, you know, get on three on each side and they start running me down the hallway to a back elevator. And then, um, as the elevator doors open, there's a, um, paramedic, you know, stretcher, you know, uh, uh, thing there put me on there they take me down to you know i come out the indiana avenue side it is like one of those glorious washington dc days there's not a cloud in the sky it's cold you know it's like probably 40s 50s it's november but it's like beautiful not a cloud in the sky unlike pittsburgh it's always cloudy you know partly pittsburgh chance of showers um but it's this beautiful you know sun shining and and they get me into an ambulance and there's a sergeant, I, I don't recall his name, but he rides up there the whole way with me. And um, he, uh, you know, he, he's talking to me the whole time, you know, don't, don't fall asleep. And, and we're talking and, and uh, you know, I, I think I, at that point they had some type of respirator on me, but I, I, I just could not. I was having, I could not breathe. And I, I was, I was so tired. I, I so wanted to go to sleep, but I knew the minute I closed my eyes, I'm a goner. It, they got me up the Washington field or Washington hospital center, which is up on North Capitol street. That's a pretty good drive, you know? And, you know, um, they get me up there and, um, um, I get into the operating room and it's a sad commentary on what Washington DC was at that point, because it was peacetime. There was no Afghanistan. There was no Iraq. There was no, you know, endless wars that we've been involved in over the last however many years since 2001. And the, the Walter Reed medical doctors in the army and the Bethesda Naval hospital doctors during that time period in order to get combat field experience were going into the D.C. hospitals. They were going into uh, Washington Hospital Center, George Washington, D.C. General, and they were getting their experience on how to how to operate and how to triage and how to work on gunshot patients. Yeah, that day I was lucky enough. I had the Bethesda, and you talk about fortuitousness and God looking down on me, having a guardian angel. Uh, but you know, that day I had the Bethesda Naval Hospital doctors i believe that were working on me in the or room and and um i i was having such a hard time i knew it was like i I remember guy middleton uh detective guy middleton he um actually we had gone out on that you know like a week before and we had we had uh you know did that interview and that bank heist the, the the armored car cases um you know, he's there, he gives me a thumbs up, you know, he's on the radio, he sees me, he gives me a thumbs up, you know, he's sent to the hospital. And, and, um, and I remember them, uh, they, they stuck a tube down my throat and it's like, it's like immediate relief. You know what I mean? I didn't feel like I was drowning anymore. You know, I guess it's like some type of intubator tube or something they stuck down, you know, looking back, but and it's freezing, I was shivering cold, you know, I guess probably because of the blood loss or whatever. And, and, uh, they put these like hot, almost felt like hot, wet towels, but they weren't wet, but they put these hot towels all over me. And they start wheeling me in the operating into the OR. And they came down with this big round, like cup mask. Um, and they went to put it over my, my face and I, I stopped them. And I said, is it okay that I go to sleep now? And they're like, yeah, you can go to sleep. Um, 
many hours of surgery. Uh, I think it was probably 12 hours of surgery. Um, they triaged my leg and I later got that operated on and rods and pins and nine yards and years later, multiple surgeries on that's actually the thing caused me the most problems. But, um, they, uh, they, they thought, I mean, they said to my wife that they'd probably have to amputate my leg. Um, and, but at a minimum, I'd never walk again. Um, I took the fit test in the bureau all the way up until I retired, uh, you know, completed it, passed it, whatever for my age range. Yeah. Good man. And, uh, you know, and, and so I, um, but, but the, the, the other good, the other thing that came out is Dr. Bikram Paul, Dr. Bikram Paul, Bikram Paul was, um, head of, uh, surgery up there. And, um, uh, and there's another Dr. Golikowski too, but Paul was the, uh, the surgeon. Now, Paul, Dr. Paul, if, if Clinton was the president back in the day and, and at the time, if there was going to be if there was ever an assassination attempt on the president, Paul was selected as the person that would operate on the president. You know? Wow. Yeah. So he was my doctor, right? You talk about, you know, right? So the best of the best. You know, um, they cracked my chest. I'm cut from, you know, below my, uh, they, they, uh, I mean, when you look back at like how, and I'm, I'm sedated at this point, I'm under, but like when you look back at how they, what surgeons go through, you know, with, with bullet holes and things like that. I mean, they, they, uh, it's almost like they use like implements from the middle ages. You know what I mean? They, they spread your, 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 they open up your rib cage and you're wide open. It's called the chest spreader. They crack your chest. They spread chest it spreader, open to get to your, your heart. Chest. Yeah. Yeah. Cut, cut through, you know, cut through your sternum. And, uh, um, at one, at one point, you know, my heart stopped beating with, they told me what my wife afterwards is Dr. Paul actually had my heart out of my chest in his hands and he was massaging it to keep it, you know, going in the blood flow. Um, and I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's a miracle of modern science as well as I think it's just a, you know, man, I, 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 I think dear Lord was yeah looking down on me. It wasn't my time to go. Well, Murph, you've said it before, brother, it was not your day to die. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I, now I was heavily sedated and couldn't know this, but I do remember it. You know, it's like one of those things, it's like, it's almost like shadows, but I can see it to this day. You know what I mean? It's like I, when they brought me out of the, out of the operating room, it's like all these, all my squad mates, everybody I'd worked with, they're like lined up, you know, on both sides of the hallway and they pulled me out and that did happen. And I did see it. <laughs> they said I couldn't have, but then, you know, and talk to people afterwards, I remember, you know, people, you know, getting down on my face and saying stuff and, you know, as I'm coming out. And then when I woke, came to, my wife was there, um, at my bedside, uh, in the intensive care. Uh, I was in intensive care probably, I got out right before Christmas. This is November 22nd. I got out, uh, about a month to the day. I think like no, December 21st or 22nd, I got out. I was back on the job in a limited duty capacity uh, in the first week of April. And then I went over the U.S. Attorney's Office for close to two years. Um, 
as a special assistant U.S. attorney. I started out in the specialist unit and then moved to general crimes in the Eastern District of Virginia. And as a U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney with a badge and a gun, and I prosecuted um, cases uh, over there in the general crimes unit. Let's let's back mm-hmm. up a little bit too, because um, there there's a lot more than just uh, again. You're there's a lot to this. It's the recovery, getting yeah. shot well, is one go, thing. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me tie it in with the why this happened and how it happened, and you know, crossroads of history or whatever, and and why I talk. Why I think Rafael Edmonds is important, and you know, the guy that brought crack cocaine to Washington, D.C. and, you know, responsible for the violence and the fact that I had a little part of that case and worked at for a number of months before getting over to C-21, um, probably working for a year before getting to C-21. But um, the first in Kennedy Street crew, okay, the, the shooter in this case is, is a person by the name of Benny Lee Lawson. Benny Lee Lawson was um, – was, uh, part of this gang, you know, he grew up, um, in, in DC and then his parents moved out to the suburbs, you know, they were, they were able to get out. I think his parents at some point got divorced and, you know, um, you look at like, I just wanted to talk to his mother actually. And I, I haven't been able to get in touch with her finder on the internet and stuff, but, um, I believe, you know, when I look at like old reports, like I know the bureau went out and talked to her. I'm not sure that they really did an adequate interview. Like I'd really like to, you know, just to know. I mean, I think she was a Christian. She tried to talk her son um, from not going back and getting down, going down there. But he, he, um, you know, like all these guys, that get you know hooked up in the allure of evil, the fast money, the fast times. He's running with the gang, uh, moves back down to live with his father in Northeast DC. Um, he. Uh, uh, is run with a gang. DC police roll them up on a search warrant. They're 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 involved in not necessarily they haven't pinned anything to him necessarily, but they're involved in incredible amounts of violence, gang violence, controlling their drug trade on the first and Kennedy Street little area. And there's a neighboring gang up the street on the next block who would encroach on their territory and they would get in running gun battles and, and fights. And like I said, members of the first and Kennedy street crew were responsible for killing that poor woman sitting at the traffic light with her kids in the, in the back of the car, you know, she's dropping them off at daycare one morning, you know, and I mean, it's just the, the, the havoc that was going on. So Benny gets, locked up with other gang members and he goes down to Lorton, um, gets convicted of, uh, gun charges when DC does a, a raid and they seize a bunch of firearms and stuff right prior to them conducting a, um, a retaliation type hit on, on a rival gang. Um, Benny gets out of jail probably in the summer of 94 and this incident happened November of 94. He starts – his mother tries to convince him as the story goes to – you know, she tries to, you know, work through the good Lord to, to you know, keep him on the straight and narrow and, and keep him under wraps. And he rolls back with the gang who is his family and he um, goes back to running with the gang and getting involved in the drug trade back on First and Kennedy and, and being part of that. And um, it was October of um, – so a month before the shooting, October of 94, they, the first and Kenny street crew target a gang member, uh, the rival, uh, drug dealer who 
you know, is, is I guess like, um, who was it? Was it, was it Biggie Small? What was the guy's name or NWA or one of those groups? I remember there was a rap song back in the, back in the day there. It was like the, the 10 commandments of, of drug dealers, you know, and this guy, the words of the song are like what the 10 commandments are. And, and one of them is you don't, you don't flash your cash. You know, you don't let other people know. And this guy was, you know, the gold teeth and the, you know, flashing the cash and, you know, f- letting people know that he's, he's, you know, holding money and stuff like that. So this drug dealer that they target person, Kennedy street crew target um, is laying his head down with this girl. And this girl is living with her grandfather up in Northeast DC um, and, and, you know, she's living with her mom, um, and, and, uh, you know, the daughter of the grandfather and, and another dude. And, uh, they start, you know, they, they, they're predators, right? They, they target this drug dealer and they see him one day, they follow him and they figure he's holding drugs or money and they follow him up onto the porch when he's coming to go see the girlfriend who's living with grandpa. Um, grandpa's like salt of the earth guy. He's a, you know, retired postal worker, 80 some years old, you know, pretty much lives in an upper floor and, you know, uh, actually was, you know, the evidence shows he was reading the Bible, you know, and, um, he, uh, they, they bum rush the guy. They, 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 as he's opening the door, they, they rush in after him and they do a home invasion. They put mom, granddaughter girlfriend of drug dealer drug dealer and the other guy on the floor um they line them up they pistol whip they beat the crap out of this drug dealer where's your stuff where you hide and they ransack the house downstairs they're looking for the drugs he's not holding anything he's not holding any drugs or money um they they one of the gang members bailey lawson's there one of the gang members um pulls out his pistol and boom, 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 boom. All right. They, they kill drug dealer, shoot him in the head, girlfriend, shoot her in the head. Mom uh, plays dead. And the other dude plays dead. They don't actually die. And then, um, then as they're running out the back door, grandpa's coming down the steps. Here's the commotion. 80 some year old guy. He confronts them. They shoot him, kill him. Triple homicide. As they run out the door, Bailey Lawson vomits. Um, and then, you know, they get back later on that evening. There's uh, all points bolting out about this triple homicide. It's, you know, even in the, as bad as the city is, you know, triples are, you know, not all that frequent, right? Um so at M- MPD F- field inquiries pulls them over in a vehicle, identify them, but, you know, there's nothing to hold them. But, you know, later main homicide, that office on the other side of the building, start – get this investigation and they're investigating uh, them. They identify the first and Kennedy Street crew as, as the group that conducted the triple – and they start building their case, and one of the ways they they figure Benny just out of jail, he's on probation, you know, he has a lot to lose. Um, they start leaning on him, and his dad brings him down several times for interviews. You know, it's like you, you they spent hours interviewing him. He never, never snitches, never coughs up any information. But 
every time he gets back after being interviewed by DC Homicide, the gang members start, you know, basically, hey, Benny, you know, you, you've been done DC Homicide. You've been talking to him for hours. You must be snitching. He tells him Benny Lee Lawson's no snitch. Yeah, Benny, you know, you, you got no heart. You you threw up after the uh, after the this triple, you know. What I mean, you're soft, you know. You can't handle it, and then you're going down. What's DC Homicide talking about for so long? You must be snitching. Bailey Lawson says, "I'm not." Bailey Lawson's no snitch. He um he he picks November twenty second to prove he's not a snitch. Now November twenty second is also the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, right? He's from the first and Kennedy Street crew. There's lots of writings that came out afterwards, like when he did the search warrant and stuff like that, drawings of him like shooting police officers. I mean, this guy was like hell-bent on killing police officers. And actually in his distorted you know, mind that sought the path of evil over goodness, he... Um, uh, decided to pick November 22nd as the day of the Kennedy assassination, the first and Kennedy street crew in honor of the first and Kennedy street crew to prove he's not a snitch. And he thought that, you know, in some of his writings, he, he believed that, you know, from that day forward, November 22nd would be the day that gangs would rise up throughout the country and kill police officers. So he dresses like a detective. He comes down to DC police headquarters on November 22nd. He enters the um, headquarter building, which is now called the Hank Daly DC Police Headquarter Building. Um, he walks unimpeded because it was a multi-use building at that time. There's no metal detectors, and like I said, it'd be like lightning striking on a on a sunny day uh, to think that that would happen there. And then um, he gets into the elevator and goes up to the third floor looking for main homicide, that mirror image office on the other side of the building for us because they're the detectives that were investigating him. He so happens to get on the elevator with Mike Will's informants that are coming up to the cold case squad. He doesn't know them. They don't know him. They just happen to get on the elevator together. Bailey Lawson gets up. They get off. He's talking to these kids, Mike Will's informants, he says, hey, where's homicide? They say, we're going to homicide. Because these kids from the streets of D.C. who don't know any better, all they ever dealt with was Mike Will, and they think homicide is Mike Will, where Mike Will's office is, where I'm sitting, where Hank is, where Mike is, where Martha is. He, um, he follows them. He actually stops at Maine homicide, outside the front door of Maine homicide. Hey, isn't this homicide? Like, no, man, we're, go we're going to homicide, right? And continues to follow them down. Now, good, bad, and different, I don't know. But the carnage could have been a lot greater because at that time, Maine Homicide had members of the media there. They were doing a big press conference behind that door. Had he walked in there with a fully automatic machine pistol rigged to with a 39 rounds in his magazine, had he walked in there, the carnage would have likely been a lot greater. And, you know, because there was a, the 
place is filled, filled with reporters, filled with news cameras. And that's why when you when there's some footage on the cameras got to that scene like really quick and then they closed the doors on and stuff like that. But there was footage right there because there's a big press conference going on right around the corner from us. So he passes main homicide, follows the informants, 1D, 2D, 3D, passed all the other homicide, unchallenged, nobody thinks anything, uh, comes up to the cold case squad. That cipher lock is probably jammed open because people have been coming in and out, getting their lunches and things like that. They walk in the main room, they pass Martha, they come into that side room that me, Mike, and Hank are in, walk through that makeshift kitchen, this detective will in, you know, that's what the kid's there for, he has nothing to do with, with Benny Lee Lawson. Then at that moment, Benny pulls out his machine pistol and opens up, and the rest is history. After the shooting with me, he went into the other room as he was coming around the corner. Martha is responding and coming to us. Martha always had your back. Martha was, you know, wasn't going to let her friends, you know, fight, fight it out by themselves. Yeah, she's she's responding. She's she's up from her desk. She has her firearm. She's tactically trained. She's coming up. She's outgunned, right? He at, at close range as he's coming out that, and this is like I'm talking seconds, right? You know, he he's coming out that door. You can't see over to what happened in that room. She, I don't know what she, but she would have heard gunfire and you know, same thing. Draws her weapon, starts to respond. He's coming out at close range with, and you figure a barrel on a on a Cobra M11 is longer, so it's a faster bullet speed does more damage even though that's also a nine millimeter you know he opens up into her unloads you know his remaining of his magazine into her hits her fatally multiple times she fires back hits him multiple times uh, all non-fatal though um and then uh uh she you know goes down and then at this point, at some point during the melee, and I think forensically you could say that one of her bullets would have, you know, hit the bottom of his plate holding the bullets in the magazine. His bullets um, go out, you know, and are spread across the floor there. And then, um, you know, so he takes her gun. She's dead or dying on the floor. He takes her gun. He turns it on himself and kills himself. That's probably when I'm starting to come through. I'm hearing this gunfire, not in my immediate area. It's going on in the in the other room. Um, and then, you know, that's that's kind of the the, the rest of the story. And hey, John, I, I look, yeah, real yes, quick sir. question about that because they're doing the research on this. There was not say dispute, but there were a couple of different theories. Is did he actually kill himself? I don't know what information came out later because the shot was through the front of the forehead committing suicide. And that's one of those, there was a, a theory that says, look, that's not normally how you do it. It's the side of the head. Is there any indication that it was one of uh, her rounds that did it or somebody else's rounds that killed him? Or, or did the information come out later that he took his own life? The information I always had was he took his own life. I mean, that's always, that's what the final, you know, shooting review group came up with. I mean, they, you know, the, I mean, the scene was stepped on, you know, uh, but I mean, it, it you know, I, I by everything that I've ever read, you know, is that he, he killed himself. He killed That's himself. what a coward does. And he killed himself. He killed himself with her gun. So I don't know how, I don't know any other 
know what I'm saying? If he killed himself with her gun, I see what you're saying. Yeah, Hollis could, I mean, I guess, you know, I think the gun was in his, you know, hand or immediately near his hand and far enough away that I don't, I don't see how, you know, forensically. It could have been anything else, yeah. Yeah, it could have been anything else. But, But, you know, at that point, point, Steve, that's the chicken shit's way out, you know. He's nothing but a coward. And I mean, maybe suicide by cop before that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, before there was suicide by cop, who knows what was going on. And and I, yeah, I mean, so in in the postscript of this, look, you know, we're a law enforcement family, a bureau family. I mean, everybody, you know, the, the bureau, we didn't know what was going on. Obviously I'm, I'm heavily sedated in the hospital, but my, my wife, you know, bore the brunt of everything and going to the funerals and, you know, all that. Um, and then, you know, just dealing with things, but the bureau was phenomenal as far as, you know, Rhonda clock had agents in the house. And then when I got out of the hospital, I met, know some guys came and they, they built like a, a walk, you know, plywood walkway to like, get the wheelchair up and stuff like that. But, you know, it was, uh, it, there's also a continuum in there too, because right afterwards there was a, uh, Shortly thereafter, there was a police assassin going around, shot police officers, killed Officer John Novobilsky, Prince George's County. That culminated in May of '95, right? Totally unrelated, but no, you know, no one knew until again the cold case squad got that one. I wasn't on at that point, but the cold case squad got that case and and took it to um, finality where they. They got that shooter and Jerry Bamel, who was on the squad with me, he engaged him. Uh, he killed he killed um, Bill, Billy Christian, who was SWAT trained FBI agent on a surveillance when they were swooping in and, and doing the arrest. And that's back before Triggerfish was like you can only tell what quarter of a cell phone tire somebody was hitting off of. It's not the technology they have today. But you know, geolocating, they they knew he was out there. They knew he was running around, and he he snuck up on Billy Christian and and uh, unloaded. Billy Christian and, and, and killed him and then Bamel um, you know got in a shootout with him and again though the wild thing on that case is yeah I think Bamel hit him fatally in the final shootout but as he's laying there dying he had Officer Novobilsky's gun and he killed himself that shooter a totally different shooting but it, it kind of was a continuum of like the year of living dangerously in, uh, in Washington DC let's circle back for a little bit because you mentioned something at the very beginning and I want to talk about that your wife was a blood donor for you let's yeah. talk about that yeah I mean look my wife's the reason why I'm in the FBI she whipped me into shape uh, always supported me throughout <laughs> and uh you know in in gave up a career you know I think it came full circle. I mean, now she's a, a federal judge, so we're we're very proud of her. But um, yeah, I mean, she she made a lot of sacrifices along the way and put up a lot of a lot of crap. So um, you know, and and she is a universal blood donor. When when I was you know lost blood, I mean, it was it's one of her pints that that maybe more uh, pints that went into me, and um, you know got me back to health. And then you know the the, the rest is. Uh, this kind of history. So yeah, I'm still here. Fantastic. To the grace of God. Absolutely. By the grace of God. That's, uh, you know, I don't think we, we've, we've said this in other podcasts, but I don't think we say it enough that the things that we go through as law enforcement professionals are dangerous. We knew that going in the job. Thank God that you survived this ordeal, but the true heroes are our families because they have to, 
put up with all this. So you're in a hospital, you're, you're zonked out where they've got your morphine or whatever for the pain. They're awake and they're dealing with this yep. psychologically as well as literally physically helping you out, keeping the family running, all the responsibilities that you have as a parent, as a, as a spouse, as a human being, she's got her own job and I'm hoping her job uh, gave her plenty of time off to be there with you. So, you know, love the fact that, that you survived it, but man, our, our, we just don't recognize our, our families, especially our spouses, what they go through when something like this happens. God bless them all. Yeah. No, same man, thing probably more guilt than anybody. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with the military families, first responder families. You know, when you go to work, one of the very few jobs, you don't know if you're coming home or you don't know how long it'll be before you come home. You just never know. Hey, let's ro- let's roll back just a little bit, John, because I want to ask you about some of the aftermath too. When when were you first aware? And look, Murph, you started this too, so we're just going to do a quick dedication. We want to make sure we get the names out. Yes. It was Sergeant Hank Daly. He was 51, FBI agent Martha. Now, you said Dixon, but in, on the news it says Martinez. Did she get married? Or Yeah, she had just been married, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I said, uh, I was known her as Dixon, you know what I mean? But yeah. FBI agent, special agent, Martha uh, Martinez, and then FBI special agent, Michael John Miller. Um, yeah. Look, the, I mean, both of the, both uh, Mike was 36, Martha was 35, uh, Hank was 51. You know, um, you think about the years of service. So we make this, ded- this episode dedicated in their names um, as well. But let's roll back a little bit, too, from a recognition standpoint. You knew the shooting was going on. You saw Hank. When when did you know about everybody who had been killed that day? When 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 was the first time you learned about everything? Uh, so so I was actually in my hospital bed, and um, I remember, um, you know, I, was, uh, I remember Jeff Bedford came in, uh, who was on the squad, still you know close friend, and. Um, that my my biggest concern, and you know, you're, you're always worried about crossfire. And I, I look back at like, I want to talk about that for a second too, because Martha, you know, like she had, she's outgunned, right? She is, you know, sixteen round magazine like we do, uh, close range, getting a shootout with somebody with semi with fully automatic, you have semi automatic. But the other thing is too is is you know, police, you know people want to armchair quarterback and all they know about policing is what they see on TV and a lot of bad stuff and a lot of false narratives through the media and and all this negative police stuff going on. But you have, you know, it's a shooter don't shoot situation. You have to worry about crossfire. You have to worry about what's behind you, you know, and I'll go back to Martha, right? You got this, She's responding. She knows she's there. She's not leaving her friends behind. She's coming to our, our assistance, right? She she has to not only worry about shooting the shooter, right? But you got a, a makeshift, basically, wall made out of rug. You know, you don't know where we're at. You don't see us behind there. You don't. So she has to, you know, have a lot of trigger discipline as far as, and that was probably to her detriment, right? you know, could have led to her death, you know what I mean? That she has to worry about, you know, not just, she didn't have the, um, she didn't you have know, the luxury shooter. that shooter had. He didn't yes. care. He just shot everywhere, shot everywhere, shot everyone. She's got to worry and, and have that trigger discipline to, to not her shots had a count and it had, they gone through, you know, could or couldn't have hit us, you know, on the other side of that wall. Um, so that's that's point number one. What I'm, I'm sorry, I, I 
I got off on it. So as far as, um, uh, I'm sorry, what was your question again? It just really about when, at what point did you know about Hank and Martha and Michael? So my, my biggest fear too, is like, you're worried about crossfire. I knew Mike, Mike was off to like the right, but you know, in the direction of the shooter, you know what I mean? My biggest concern was always like, Hey, what, you know, my God, I, I hope, you know, none of my, you know, you live with that. None of my shots, you know, could have hit Mike, which they didn't, but you know I mean? That's, that's just what you have to worry about is, is, and then, um, I came to in the hospital and I, I couldn't speak, you know, uh, as, as Jeff Bedford retells the story. And I, I, forgot completely about this we did this in the martha dedication but um yeah i i, I remember I, I i wrote you know who died you know because i know you know it wasn't a matter of if i know what i saw you know what i mean and and then uh you know jeff was the one that w- w- told me you know and it just you know uh, devastating you know uh, to this day you know what i mean it, you, you think about it and uh you know to this day i mean it's, it's a it's a it's a huge loss you know what i mean but you know you don't dwell on it you you move yeah you move along and you you move past it but you know that's that's uh young lives that had a lot you know the best of the best you know the way they lived their lives you know were just good you know and and you know snuffed out early um but again it's in the in the cause of freedom i guess and which i go back to freedom isn't free you know absolutely and uh you know, this, this whole false narrative out there that this is such a rotten country. And, you know, I mean, there is no, you know, I've been around the world. I've been in some pretty awful places. The Bureau actually sent me to probably some of the worst places, you know, um, you, you know, but for the, you know, the time in London where I hit the lottery on that one. But, uh, you know, you see how other countries, other systems of justice run, even in the Western world, man, there is nowhere I mean, the, the the founders perfected it, right? They, the, the the best system that could be perfected, and we're still perfecting it. And and it's not, you know, yeah, there's injustices and things like that, but at its heart, you know, the American system of government, the American system of rule of law, the American system of of rights uh, is is the best. And you know, I I just see people are willing to uh, uh, toss you know, so easily the uneducated masses or those that don't know history are so willing to toss it for a little bit of security and, and, uh, um, you know, for what else is out there, you know, and the, the other systems that are out there <laughs> are not, are not our system and are not nearly as, as good as our system. Right. And, and a lot of these people that are spouting this rhetoric, which is nothing more than, you know, their, their personal narrow minded positions have never, experienced outside anything outside their little world. They haven't been to a third world country. They haven't been to a war zone. You know, they, they, they echo what they hear other people say without doing their own research, without, and a lot of times without even personal experience, they just think, oh, this is the cool thing to say and, and not to go political here, but I got to say it, our politicians waver with public opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that Rayford, uh, case is a perfect example. The man's got two life sentences and they commute it to time served. Yeah. It's yeah. pathetic what we're going through right now, but that's, we've been, you know, uh, Morgan and I have done a couple of, uh, um, Patreon episodes on our opinions on things like that. And we put it right here too, man. This is, 
the whole purpose of having Game of Crimes on this uh, out here on the podcast airwaves is so that our listeners can learn about the heroic actions of those who will put themselves will put others before themselves. You know, did you intend to go in? Did you know you were going to be in a shooting that day? Of course not. No, none of us ever think we're going to be in a shooting unless it, we're making a proactive raid on a situation. Uh, you just thought it was going to be another day in the office there. But you guys didn't run away. You stood the ground. You know, you you raised your swords and you protected freedom. Uh, man, I, I mean, I could get on my soapbox here and, and bore everybody to death with my personal opinions. But let me just end this little diatribe here that I'm on. With Usually saying, I'm the God one that's on it, but Murph has overtaken me on this one. <laughs> well, God bless it for you guys, for what you stood for, for the sacrifices that you and your families were willing to make and did make for everybody else's freedom. And everybody that's, you know, I think our listeners are pretty much pro-law enforcement, and we know that we've converted some people over to at least look at it from the other person's position. You know, whether you're still law enforcement, pro-law enforcement or you're still, you know, on the fence, whatever, these are the kind of freaking heroes that are out there every day risking their lives and their families are just as much backed up against the wall because they don't know if we're going to come walking back through that door or not. But if you ask my wife, she'll tell you, if I got killed in the line of Dewey, I was doing what I felt was right and what I wanted to do. And you got to have that support. Yeah. And John, brother, you never get over it, but you do get through it. Um, you know, it, it, people say, well, um, there is no, you know, um, closure is a myth. There's no such thing as closure. You'll never get back to the day before. There's no such thing as that. But what you do is you do get, um, you, you, you are able to move forward at some point because you get resolution. And the resolution was the guy's dead. He's no longer a threat, but you've got three heroes now, um, that died because somebody, decided that that was their day to die. You know, it's like, hey, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm part of a gang. I didn't like the way I was treated. All about a perceived reputation that they thought he was a snitch. So what does he do? He kills three people to prove he's not a snitch. It seriously injures you. But we we could go off on that for a long time. But I want to bring it back to, you mentioned a couple of things because we ran it, first time I'd heard the term in a long time uh, was uh, Keith Cregan, Steve, where he was a salsa a special yeah. assistant U.S. attorney. So yeah. you came out of that and you're, you're trained as a lawyer. You know, you've got, you've obviously um, have done the, the legal work before. So tell me about what it was like to not be able to go back to doing what you were doing and moving into this role, being a special assistant U.S. attorney. Like you said, you're a badge carrying, gun carrying attorney. Uh, you can clear your own cases. I mean, there's, there's some <laughs> well, advantages to that. Conflict, <laughs> conflict, you couldn't, you know what I mean? Well, I couldn't do anything that. I worked on, but, but no, I mean, it was, it was, I'll tell one, one funny story from that. Um, Gary Ponacorvo, he was on the, uh, I think he retires in ASAC out of New York, but he, he was on the, uh, drug squad. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you guys all know this, right? So the, the worst thing an AUSA can do, uh, assistant U S attorney, I'm using acronyms, but the worst thing is, is call you my agent, right? You know what oh, I mean? It's yeah. like, I hated that, right? It's like, I'm not your agent, right? You know, we're, we're equals at different, with different roles. And in, in no, you're in the my government. prosecutor. That's where it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, the, the, my agent thing, you know what I mean? So, so 
I'm over there. I'm, I'm pulling FBI cases. I'm pulling customs cases back before there's Homeland Security. I'm Secret Service cases, bringing great like little fraud cases and stuff like that. And it was a, a tremendous program. What they did is they they take you six months and they send all these DOJ attorneys with no trial experience, and they run them through the the special uh, the specials unit. And then you you start out doing mag court, magistrate court. Um, and in DC, it's really busy because you have the George Washington Parkway. So it's petty drug offenses. It's uh, it's um, DUIs. It's it's everything to the state because it's on federal land. It's it's like state crimes, but you know what would be, you know, on on, on uh, federal lands because of you know the the jurisdiction there. And then afterward, your second months, like I, I ran I ran Mag Court, you know, the Magistrate Court, um, a, a team of you know sauces, and we you know did DUI cases and all this. And then you had, um, and then you start pulling felonies. And then by your last, your, your last two months of that six months. So at month five and six, you are doing felonies. And then I, cause I was limited duty. Helen Fahey was the U S attorney and I was pulled up to the general crimes unit where that's the bank robberies, the child pornography cases, the, you know, the, the serious, you know, I mean, not that that wasn't serious on the salsa case, but that's like getting your teeth cut as a new baby AUSA, and then you know got up to general crimes and was part of general crimes unit, which was just amazing. But the, but the cool thing was, it's like I was, I was taking cases from guys I knew, you know what I mean? And I remember we had one trial, and it, Gary was like. Um, you know, everybody hated, like, if you were called by an AUSA, my agent. And I would always dig it in with these guys. Hey, my agent. You know what I mean? Everybody came in with my agent. <laughs> my you know, brother, my agent. Because I, I, I could sure get away you never with got it. the finger, did you? Yeah, yeah I, I got away with it. But the beauty of it was we had just finished a drug trial. This guy got, like, 27 years. This is a fascinating case Gary brought. And it was, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, Pooh Jones, I think the guy's name nickname was Pooh, P-O-O-H. Oh no, no, no. We but, got we got we got the we got the nickname of all time. Steve, remember it from our Patreon episode, Doodoo Butt. Doodoo Butt. His nickname was Doodoo Butt. I love it. I love it. But but this is a great case. They they were uh, running. Um, they were they they had this. They called a box. Like they would have these mechanical. Uh, boxes that they would hide the cocaine in and they would um uh they they would you know they were going up to new york or somewhere and they were getting these people to put these like hydraulic hidden boxes in these cars and like it was pretty you'd have to turn like the air conditioner on turn the radio on hit the am button and then this thing would open like they had all these different like circuits would have to be touched for them to do traps that they have in there yeah yeah, and I mean the cool thing is like you you think about like little things that make a case, but there was a Prince George's County canine officer that pulled him over and the dog hit and but they can never find the drugs in this vehicle. And then later, you know, search warrants, stuff like that, they got it and they arrested the guy. But but I used that guy, that canine officer as a witness during, you know, during the conspiracy trial to show that, you know. This guy was carrying drugs, and he had witnesses that said that day he was – operators that said and, and it was corroborated by – yeah, the drugs weren't found, but the canine officer's dog hit on it. You know what I mean? That was part of the testimony. But it, it's just neat. But but I remember – so we're waiting for the jury to come out, and there was, there was some question from the judge. Um, I remember that judge. I can't he, – he's – I think he's probably deceased by now, but he's old time, you know, real thick, 
you know, Southern accent, you know, and, um, Gary and I are sitting at the, at the table, you know, um, at the, you, you know, where the U S attorney's office sits closest to the jury and in, in the old federal courthouse, which is now Nick Mick, I think, but that's the old federal national center for missing and children, but that was the old federal courthouse in, in Alexandria, or maybe that's, yeah, no, that's, that's it. I've been down there. A friend of mine just retired as the executive director, John Clark. That's a, I mean, it's okay. a pretty area, you know, yeah, but that was the old federal courthouse before they built, you know, the new one. And and we're sitting there, and I remember the judge saying, "Mr. Kufta, have your agent run down to the U.S. You know what? They, they needed something or other." And he's like, "Have your agent." So I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> she told you, "You're my agent." Yeah, you're my agent, Gary. You know, what I mean, Gary's like this big, muscular, like power lifter guy. You know, what I mean, it was, it was, it was, he never, I, I never let him live at that. My agent, come here, son. Come here, son. <laughs> but now that was a tremendous experience. I got to try felony. I had like over thirty felony pleas. I negotiated grand jury practice, indicting cases. He did suppression hearings. I mean, and I actually had the opportunity to stay, but I, I wanted to get back in the bureau. Sometimes I think about, you know, but hey, it was a. It was a great experience, and I loved every minute of it. Let's talk about that glide path after the because you were still rehabilitating. How long did it take before you were able to actually resume your duties, before you were to the point where you were physically capable of carrying those out? So I got off a limited duty in December of 96. and um, We're talking over two years after the shooting. Yeah, yeah. And then back then, Louis Free was a director, and, and the doctors basically said, look – that was my ticket back to Pittsburgh. We'd gone back. We looked at homes in Pittsburgh, but, you know, it broke my wife's heart. But basically at the time, and, you know, I could probably, I can handle that weather now, but, but at that time, medically, the doctor's like, look, you need preferably a, a hot, wet climate, hot, humid climate, um, or, or somewhere dry out West, you know, but you going back to Pittsburgh at this time would be Is that really, just because of the cold and the injuries? I mean, yeah, it really, yeah, it would yeah, just aggravate yeah. them and make Arthritis it Arthritis would set in early and, you know, I mean, that was their thing. And I've had multiple surgeries. I have bone grafts. I'm like, I'm body with it. But I mean, I mostly on my, my leg. Um, and that's really what's given, you know, the most issues through the years. But um, yeah, but I mean, so that's why we came down kind of sight unseen and stayed in the RA and uh, eventually got over to London and, and um, you know, now retired. But So when you said stay in the RA, which resident agency? Uh, Fort Myers. Okay. Fort Myers RA. Yeah. Tough yeah. place to be. Yeah, tough place. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we had our own federal courthouse, our own U.S. attorney's office. It's It was a, it was like, it was a good ride, man, you know? And I ended up being SSRA out of that, too. When did you punch out of the Bureau officially? Uh, August of 18. And I really wasn't looking, and it was probably a bad season in my life. And I, I you know, sometimes I, I mean, I, I look back, it's like, wow, I probably should have stayed in. But, you know, you can't do anything. Once you walk out the door, you can't get back in. But, you know, I, I wasn't looking. I got a call from, you know, I was, 55 and you know it's 57 mandatory retirement although now they're letting you know people stay to 60 if if you could pass the fit test and you know have a good conduct and stuff like that but um i uh that's probably really where i wanted to be i mean i had you know and then i got a call from a guy i used to work with in washington field and hey you know looking got this great you know corporate job and you know blah 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 and i went through the interview process and um you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it looked good. And then it was like, ended up being like, 
80% of my time I was like traveling overseas, which, you know, I, I left there after about two years, you know, but, um, you know, it just wasn't a good fit. And where I'm at now, it's awesome. I mean, I, I'm, I'm at a really great aerospace company that treats me like gold, you know. Fellow um, Floridian, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, about um, a mile from Murph. Hey, but I, I'm interested in your last – your tour of duty in uh, London. Yes. the A-lat – by the way, I got to tell you, I ran into some of your legats, uh, legal attaches yeah. over in Pakistan yeah. and Turkey. And, yeah. Um, and actually, just by way of reference, in 2012, I was the senior law enforcement advisor for the Republican National Convention. I spent six months between Tampa and St. Pete, you know, and, uh, you know, working on that stuff down there. I mean, it just was fun to work with everybody. Uh, one of the funnest things, I have the challenge coin. We got to go over to a classified briefing over at CENTCOM, McDill Air Force Base. Yes. And yeah, been uh, there plenty of times. Got, got to go into the room. It's, there's called the, the CPOC, the Central Point of Command, and then the FPOC, the Four Point of Command. We went into the room. Phones come up out of the table. General points towards it. Says that's the phone that operate that launched Operation Neptune Spear. So had the chance to touch that phone. I walked around for six months saying, "Hey, smell my finger. It's the smell of freedom." I didn't wash my hand for six months, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I'll tell you what the honor was. Had a chance to meet a Medal of Honor winner. Um, he was down part of the group that we were with, but a great area, and it's a great area that you're down there. But how did you end up? You know, I mean, you love that. So if you wanted to stay away from the cold. And you know, and the stuff. What were you doing in London then? Because London could be fun, but it can be cold and dreary a lot of times. Yeah, London's it is a cold and dreary place. However, like the people are awesome, man. And it, I mean, I I can't say enough good things. Plus, I got a great son-in-law out of the deal, so um, I couldn't have picked a better guy for my daughter. But um, is he British? Yeah, he's British. He's British. He's he's uh yeah, he's South Londoner, man. Um. But knock uh, me off against Wall Street, mouth with a putty knife, sir. You know, it, it was it was kind of like a, a comparative law study too, because they they we both came out of like the common law system, but we went kind of different ways. You know, what I mean, but we kind of we're we're a lot alike, but there's there's a lot of differences, and and uh, just you know, working with British policing, just the way they do it, and they don't really have an FBI. They kind of tried to create this national crime agency, but but it was like it, it's really strange. It's it's really like New Scotland Yard, which is, you know, which is the London Metropolitan Police Service, right? They're, they're London and the boroughs surrounding London and that like M25 Beltway kind of thing. They, they also are in charge of counterterrorism, right? For pretty much the whole country. SO15. Yeah, SO15, exactly. And then, um, so, so it's like really an FBI role. So you dealt with like them on certain things and like they handled overseas fugitives and stuff like that. So you dealt with them on that city of London, which is like, it's only one square mile, but the city is like wall street. Right. And, and they also have jurisdiction for like a lot of your high end white collar and corporate fraud and things like that, that the FBI is involved in. They have nationwide and even some international jurisdiction because they have their, their, um, uh, yeah, and, and and just you know, just uh, like like the FCPA and Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, and like their own version of that, which is like goes back to like 1898, right? Their Overseas Bribery Act and stuff like that. So, so it, it was really kind of just trying to figure it out and and you know work with them. But I got I, I was the criminal attaché, and I you know so anything coming from the U.S. 
to them. I would assist them if they needed things from the U.S. I would do that. And there's like no marshal service over there. So I was like the conduit with the marshal service. Securities Exchange Commission doesn't have an attache. So I was, you know, the the conduit for them to get things done. But it, it's a, you know, they the Bureau really expanded overseas, although London was the London, Mexico City, and um, Canada were the three original overseas offices. And I mean, the, the London office dates back to World War II when the original Legat came over on a, on a, on a merchant marine vessel during World War II, you know, ducking torpedoes, had to get dropped up in Scotland and make his way down. But like you look at the history there, like they, they – um, you know, that first that first Legat's experience when you read about it, you know, and there's like books written about this this guy, but you know, they were they had the you know, they were getting bombed, you know, by the um those Bezel bug bombs and stuff that just came like where they were living, got bombed and stuff during during uh World War Two. But like his first experience, he was met, you know, coming off the train after this long, arduous journey to get over there. And he's met by who? A Metropolitan police officer who takes him home and they have dinner with his wife and family. And he gets, and that's how it was over there. I mean, the Brits are just amazing, amazing partners. It's, it's our best partner in the whole world. And I mean, I just got tremendous friendships built out of that but you, you know you're all cops and you, you you get the job done and you get done with each other and it's all and it's not like like some of these other you know three-letter agencies that have these like black budget dude we had nothing i mean everything is <laughs> on your personality right you know it's coming out of, you got to go out you, you know the beer's done not like people are like drunkards or anything like that. I don't want to give that impression, but like, you know, here it's over golf or like lunch or something like that. People business gets done over there. It's over a pint at the pub and the pub goes back to the public house over back in the middle ages or even before that, because they had to, you know, ferment their water to drink it or they die. You know what I mean? So it's like this long, the folks can't see this. I'm going to show this up to you. So if you can see that, tell me if you can see that, John. It's kind of like a, it's a Christmas party with SO15. Uh, that was Graham Birch. That is, and yeah, then this awesome. is us. Um, this is us at midnight. Graham is drunk as shit, leaning <laughs> up against the light pole. Alan's holding him up. We had those guys on our episode. They still blame me today because I drank two Englishmen under the table. Graham fell down 15 feet from his house and broke two fingers on his left hand. I said, good thing you guys don't carry guns. Alan was so drunk, he left his coat on the on the subway, and it drove off with his keys in his pocket. So he's knocking on the house at 1 o'clock in the morning, making his wife very happy. But uh, no, they, they were a great bunch of guys. Uh, had a Christmas party with those. But my my favorite story about the FBI in World War II came from a J. Edgar Hoover memo, because J. Edgar was very particular about everything. You know, you got to look the part, got to do the stuff. And they wrote a memo about they were worried about Nazi infiltration and maybe some espionage. And he sent the memo back and he said, "Watch the borders." So. They assigned a bunch of agents to go watch the borders, only to find out six months later, he meant watch the borders of the memo. Don't write outside the borders of the memo. I believe it. I believe it. He also was no, he went into an office somewhere. And, no, it's, yeah, yeah. Because no one would question the emperor, right? I mean, everybody yeah, was, right. you know, he was surrounded by sycophants probably, and no one, everybody was afraid to say anything. But like the no pinheads, right? Uh, that the, he went into one office and there was, uh, somebody had a smaller hat, so therefore a smaller head size than, you know, back when they used to wear the, the hats in the 40s and stuff. And he, he came out with no pinhead. So, you know, whoever had a small head, I probably wouldn't get in today because <laughs> I have a small head, but no, no pinheads. 
Yeah. That's one of the, the reasons to not keep people out of the Bureau. Yeah, look, we've gone on a really you know, big journey and stuff, but I kind of want to bring it down to we we had a let's finish up with kind of a philosophical discussion because we were starting to talk about that. Yeah, sure. And I finally had to put the time out and say, well, this is good stuff. We got to capture this. So you you had some philo- philosophical things you kind of wanted to discuss because we're talking about you gave that quote, you know, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's kind of what we're going through right now. So I just wanted to kind of tee that up and let you riff with that for a little bit because you you have some insights very few people have. You were there when it was bad, you were there when it was good, and you've seen this line of history move. So just give us your your closing thoughts about that. Yeah, so let me let me just go with I'll end and I'll build on a, a quote, right? And Sir Winston Churchill said, "No one pretends democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms of government that have been tried from time to time." And I think America, our government, our constitution, which both of you and I took an oath to uphold and defend so many years ago. It provides the greatest system for protecting civil rights, individual freedom, and liberty. And this is the greatest form of government in world history. All right. Now, look, our system's imperfect and and we're still on that journey, um, you know, to, to always make it better. But what I find that wasn't happening in 1994, okay, is the the dangerous and false narratives that have taken root right now in this country. And there's a, there's a, it culminates in this false narrative that America and our constitutional form of government is somehow systemically racist or the police are the enemy. And this narrative is being perpetuated by, I'm going to blame feckless politicians, right? Anarchists, as we saw, you know, in, in 2019 and 2020, and you know now it's there's this whole movement to defund the police that we've seen played out over the last couple of years, and this only serves to divide and destabilize a nation. You know who who's licking their chops during all this, right? Russia, China, you know Iran, na- name our enemy, right? And and is there any is there really any wonder that lawlessness, civil disorder? Violent crime, murder rates are skyrocketing in the cities and towns that vilified law enforcement. I mean, have you been to L.A. or San Francisco lately? I have. You know, it's compared to what it used to look like, the San Francisco, Paris on the Pacific, most beautiful architecture. It's beyond third world what's going on there. You know, and, and, and the level of crime and violence, it's, it's played out by the statistics, you know. And this decline in support for law enforcement amongst our primarily our government officials and now in pop culture, it's had serious ramifications nationwide. You know, the FBI report reported last year, 50 percent rise in law enforcement officers assaulted and killed in the line of duty in the one year period. Think of that number. 50 percent. Law enforcement assaulted and killed in the line of duty between last year and this year. Any of you have friends in law enforcement, you know that recruiting is woefully low nationwide. You know, people are leaving. They're either retiring, retiring early, or they're just getting out, or they're going to departments that, you know, do back the police or places where prosecutors exist that, you know, 
uh, that, that stand up for, for police officers and will have their back. But, you know, they're, they're leaving law enforcement in droves. And, you know, we, we can't forget, right? There's a very – we talk about the thin blue line, right? But there's a very, very thin blue line that separates anarchy from ordered liberty. And the last time this country danced with this soft-on-crime devil was in the 1970s and then peaking in the early 1990s with all those murder statistics I talked about when our major cities were reduced to crime-infested hellholes. And my message right now is going to be to the younger generation who've grown up in relative peace, stability, prosperity, and who never learned the lessons of the recent past. And my message is also to the members of my generation who forgot the lessons of the recent past. You know, so those people sitting in in big cities now, you know, where the crime rates are, you know, starting to jack up, you know, is you sit there in your outdoor cafe, sipping your latte in neighborhoods that were once crime-ridden killing fields, Recognize that the air of freedom you breathe today is not free. The comfort and security you enjoy was paid for with the blood, the sacrifice, and the lives of this generation and previous generations of men and women of law enforcement. Names like Michael John Miller, Henry Joseph Daly, Martha Dixon, Billy Christian, and those over 22,000 officers' names carved into the granite walls of Law Enforcement Memorial in Washington, D.C., so that's that's my final word. Amen, brother. I couldn't have said it any better. Um, no. And look, uh, you're right. We all we've all been to funerals. We've all have friends whose names are on the wall. We all know what it takes, and we all know what it's like when they're gone. Um, and I just, and you know, the thing I like about what you said is we we called out if you want to see what impact policies can have when you have these policies, all you have to do is look at the homicide rate what it was before these policies started and this narrative started and what they happened. And if you want to know what kills people, words kill people. When you use the words like it's been used, it changes the policy, it changes the attitudes. And now more people die in Philly, more people die in New York, more people die in D.C. Do we not equate the value of their lives? I mean, that, that's the part that gets me is you don't have to put an R or a D behind it. There are feckless politicians, R, D, or I, out there, they need to grow. They need to pour some miracle grow in their lap, grow a pair uh, for for the men, I should say, and um, for both. But you know, we've we've got to get back. We're not talking about a police state. You're just talking about um, where the safety and security of the public is 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 the foundational element for living there. And I will tell you, to your point too, having been in a few foreign countries. I, I tell people, I said, if I'm, if, if I'm ever going to get arrested in due time somewhere, I want it in the United States. Because where else could you have appeal upon appeal? You know, you could have, you could go to the Supreme Court. These things could happen. Every case has a chance to make it to the Supreme Court, you know, considering the conditions. But look, been in Pakistan, been in Turkey, been in some, you know, uh, other countries, you know, even you think, Steve, you know, South America and Colombia, there's justice systems. But the way they do things there. Final word for me, too, because I, I didn't say a whole lot because your story was so compelling. But, Steve, I go back to the point of what you were made when we were interviewing you and Javier, the same thing with Chris and Dave on, on our um, Cali edition, is that people think that, oh, we'll just send it to people there. They'll get it however they want, even if it's illegal, but we can use it in the United States. And the whole point is we can't use evidence unless it was obtained legally, even right. in another country. 
You know, that's what the rule of law here. So my, my advice to some of you folks who don't like it is name me one foreign country where their system of justice that has been around as long as ours is better. Just name one country where it's better. Um, and I will tell you, to your point, it's we're a work in progress. We will always be a work in progress. But uh, again, I'm off my soapbox. Uh, I, that was not a digression, so you don't get to drink again on this game. That was an extenuation of his stuff. But, but John, I got to tell you, man, um, probably this is one of the episodes where the guest you just articulated it so well. There was no need for me and Murph to interject anything. I think that's one of the longest stretches of narrative we've ever had on an episode. And just to listen to what you went through in that building um, and just uh, look, we, we could talk about politicians, Marion Barry, the fact that he didn't spend money. At the end of the day, it takes away from the sacrifice of uh, Hank Daly, uh, Martha uh, Dixon and Mike Miller. Um, and this, that's who this episode is dedicated to, you know, into watch November 22nd, uh, 1994. You know, and what that translates to John is, is you now hold the record for keeping Morgan quiet during a podcast interview <laughs> on game of crime. So hats off to you, brother. Great job. Can our listeners know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry guys. It took an FBI agent to do that. <laughs> Well, well okay. a lawyer. It's a lawyer. <laughs> we could not. John could not get onto the platform we're using. We had to make a change. Murph couldn't do it for him. It took him go. FaceTiming me to say, just click the little button in the upper left-hand corner. That's all it took. And all of this brain power couldn't figure out what what little statey cop was able to do for it's them. It's not. It's not FBI agent proof. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, and see that wasn't that wasn't a police officer challenge. That was a lawyer challenge. There's a lawyer side on you coming out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the other joke I like, only a lawyer can write a 100-page document and call it a brief. That I'm bummed. Thank you very much. So That's good. I like that. Hey, I John. Like that. John, it's been a true honor to have you on here. We thank the good Lord above that you are still here with us today. Our hats go off to those killed in the line of duty and especially to everyone's families. It's been a true honor to have you on here, man. I, I know we talked about e to each other, what, a year ago, and, and we finally got you on here. And, and, and but you tell to, your uh, wife how much we admire her too for do, for doing what she did supporting you uh you know how many wives are down there sticking their arm out putting a needle in there to take blood to save their husband's life and so um she gets a special salute from us as well and and a little shout out to Jaime Camacho for uh following through and putting us together an old friend retired DE agent that we're both good friends with so thank you Jaime thank you Jaime yeah. Well, thank you. I don't well, know, Jaime, honor, but thank it's you. It's an honor and a privilege, but thank you. And thanks for getting the word out and keeping us going because you're doing a tremendous service, I think, um, to the women and men of law enforcement. Thank you, brother. We're just a small voice. Uh, in fact, I'll use one of your uh, famous Churchill quotes. Everybody said, you know, they, they complimented him for, you know, being the uh, the voice, you know, of England, the roar. And he says, no, um, I'm trying to think the exact quote, but he basically said, um, I, I was not the Lion of England. I was not the roar. I only gave voice to the roar. You know, he he said what the English people were already famous for, that stiff upper lip, keeping their resolve, you know, during World War II, the Blitzkrieg. So, look, we're, we're just simply a conduit for the voices of people like you, the other ones that have come before you and the other ones that will come later. But anytime you have somebody who's a survivor in a shooting and you realize what their story is and the fact that three of your colleagues died that day in that room, uh, defending freedom, like you say, if people just really would understand what was at stake then is the same thing that is at stake now. And and if you think it's bad, 
you haven't seen bad till you've got 500 homicides a year, 700 in the and more than that here in the National Capital Region. If you want to start counting PG, Montgomery, you know those areas like that, it, it can get a lot worse. Except for the fact you've got men and women willing to work shitty jobs for shitty pay, to work shitty hours, to to do what? To go home at night and make sure that you go home at night. So yep. I, I leave it at that. God Amen. bless, brother. This is me saluting you. People can't see this. Me saluting you, John Kufta. If you were if you were from uh, Minnesota, it would be Ufta. But John Kufta, uh, we salute you, sir. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else that's listening, stay tuned for the debrief. Man, if if you're not proud of somebody who has served their country like John Kufta, um, I, I can't help you. I mean, and Steve, that is the most amazing thing you said. Shot through the heart, survives the will to win. And like we said, it wasn't your day to die, brother. And he went on to do great things. It, it is, and and John is is so humble about his experiences. Um, he's not one to take credit for anything. I mean, he he laid it out what he did there. I mean, he he got off as many rounds as he could. Then as he's been, as he's shot and laying on the floor, he's still raising his hand up above the table, trying to get led down. We call it getting led down range, which you're trying to protect yourself and your fellow officers. He didn't know what was going on. Uh, the uh, uh, lady that was the FBI agent that was killed in there, he didn't know what her status was. She was in a, a different part of the room that couldn't see what was going on out front. So I, quite honestly, man, I mean, you talk about an American hero, an American patriot, John Kufta fills both of those slots with flying colors, man. Just, as I said in the beginning, so proud to have him on the show. And he was awarded the FBI's highest award you can give to an agent uh, for what he did. And he should have because John was still able to get off some rounds. He was still, even though critically wounded like he was, was able to return fire. Um, I, I tell you, I'm just, I'm humbled when I talk to people like that because you go, you know, and he, Steve, the bad thing is, is, they were working in an area that they thought they should have been relatively safe. Cipher lock on the door. Nobody's supposed to be in there. Um, and they're working and stuff. And but, but that just tells you budget cuts have an effect. They didn't have the proper security. So many other agencies were working in that building. Um, this is why, you know, hey, look, it's all it takes is one person to forever change the trajectory of many people's lives. So we dedicate this again, like we say. Uh, Sergeant uh, Hank Daly, 51, of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department, FBI agents Mike Miller, who was 41 at the time, and Special Agent Martha Dixon Martinez, 35. Um, the only, if there's any measure of justice, the chicken shit saved the taxpayers a lot of money. He's done. Yeah, he's room temperature. So yep. enough with him. We will not mention his name again. But hey, hopefully you guys, hopefully you guys were inspired by this story. Uh, it was an honor to talk with John and do that. But hey, look, if you enjoyed this episode, just head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Let people know what you think about it. Drop a comment in there. Let us know what else we can work on. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be updating it as we go along. Merch, books, uh, things like that. Follow us on that social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Just go over and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. 
or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever makes it easier to you. But Murph, uh, I can say it again real fast three times where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. <laughs> Come and check us out on Patreon. Just give us a shot on this. See if you like the content we're putting on there. We're always open to suggestions. If you've got ideas that you think would be better, if you, if you have different opinions uh, than what we have on there, you're more than welcome to, ex- to express those to us. We love hearing different opinions because we're not always right. I am, but Morgan, he's coming along. I'm working with him. But you know what? When we hey, have look, different... I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. So, yeah. <laughs> no, you weren't. But and here's the cool thing about it: we can have a difference of opinions, and we can still be friends. So come over, check us out, uh, tell your friends about us. Come on over. We're trying to upgrade our equipment. Um, I didn't realize podcasting was so expensive here. I think we're up to like seventy-two cents an hour now for all the all the time we're putting in. So. But it is a labor of love. It is. I, this is a blast. I never dreamt of doing a podcast. I'm having a blast doing this. Well, if you want to, if you want to keep me in the lifestyle of Tommy Bahama, uh, please, please, give till it hurts. No. Just... Yeah. Oh well. I, you know. And now I got to go the other way. Don't. If that's where the money's going, don't send us anything. <laughs> hey. No. No. Don't never say that. Anyway, guys, thank you guys for doing that. Uh, but really appreciate. Drop your comments in there. Make sure you go visit us out uh, at, and also go visit our Game of Crimes fan group. Sandy Salvato will allow you entry if you just half-ass at least try. Give it a couple <laughs> questions. Just get close. You know, you know, it's kind of like Murph. Just get close. Close. That's it. close enough for government work. You know. That's right. All right. Well, hey guys, we want to bring this to a close. But again, we want to thank you once again for being our players out there and for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 